Today we're going to be talking about enhancing emotional intelligence and this is really part of living the psychological good life. I'm going to uh, actually start out uh, quoting from a philosopher uh, that I agree with most of what he says on this slide, but I don't agree with everything that he says and see if you can figure out the part that I don't agree with. If we get our slides working or projector working. Uh, so um, you'll, uh, you know, you guys are in, in, most of you I'm sure are in graduate school, so maybe you don't have to see it on a slide. Just remember what I'm saying here. There are many ways to demonstrate anger and anyone can become angry, that is easy. But to be angry with the right person, and to the right degree, and at the right time, and for the right purpose, and in the right way, that is not within everyone's power, and that is not easy. What part do I not agree with? that it's not within everyone's power. It actually is once you learn the principles of emotional intelligence. First of all, what is emotional intelligence? It's understanding your emotions and the emotions of others and responding to those emotions in a healthy way. It sounds pretty simple, uh, but of course there are things involved with that. Uh, one of the reasons uh, why we're talking about emotional intelligence as far as living the psychological good life is studies have shown that this has much more to do with your success and happiness than even your IQ does. You know, your IQ was measured for many of you in taking the MCAT test. You don't realize it, but that's actually an IQ test. It's not um, really testing other types of things per se. Uh, and, of course, that IQ test has um, some inaccuracies to it as well. It's not a completely accurate test. Uh, and, of course, those that are studying for dentistry and other graduate schools, those are things that they're actually trying to measure in these pre-admission tests. Is your IQ, in a sense, to be able to handle the material that you're going to be learning and be able to be um, successful? But studies show that IQ actually is not related to an enjoyable life. That's why we have the term ignorance is bliss. Uh, but of course, uh, even that isn't quite completely true because the effects of your ignorance eventually catches up with you and you live some very non-blissful um, moments uh, as a result of it. Uh, but actually what is much more connected to not only a happy life but a fulfilling life is your emotional intelligence. Now, how I got in the, involved in the area of emotional intelligence actually is because of um, our involvement in depression and anxiety recovery. What we were surprised to find out when we were doing our pre-admission tests and our post-admission tests was not only that the depression and anxiety and, uh, in the majority of people um, was gone in 10 days, but their emotional intelligence significantly improved in a 10-day period of time. And, uh, and in fact, most individuals that end the program not only end depression and anxiety free, but they end the program normally in the top 20 percentile of emotional intelligence. That means that they are being uh, placed 
um, their brains are being placed in a position to be far more successful than people that have never suffered from depression and anxiety. And so when I realized that, I thought, what would happen if we had people with good brains who are not depressed and anxious applying these principles? And that's, of course, how we can have a great brain come about. But one of the things that we actually do in our comprehensive program, in fact, I was just lecturing to a large um, non-Christian um, audience, primarily agnostics and atheists, um, just this past weekend up in Portland, Oregon. And uh, we were explaining to them the principles that we use to enhance emotional intelligence. And one of the questions, it, it tends to be a common question, was, um, you know, you didn't mention anything about Eastern meditation. Uh, you know, this needs to be something that I'm sure you incorporate in a comprehensive program to improve depression and anxiety and emotional intelligence. And um, actually, we don't not because we're not aware of the emotional um, or some of the effects of meditation. In fact, one of the things I would encourage you to do when you're studying the results of tests of Eastern meditation is see if they actually looked for any adverse effects. Uh, we actually have a, um, a speaker uh, coming from Asia, a, a Zen, former Zen Buddhist, um, in our Emotional Intelligence Summit in February is a neuroscientist um, as well. But he's actually going to be um, taking a look at that part that actually is, you know, there are certain areas of science that are actually not necessarily true science because they're not looking at it in the, uh, in the correct way. And I could go into several of those things. This is how myths are actually developed even in the scientific world. But the Eastern meditation um, specialist that's coming is going to be talking about all of the various Eastern meditation techniques, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And this is one area that in many medical and scientific journals, they never even looked for adverse effects. And can you imagine studying a drug only looking at the efficacy, but not looking at side effects? Uh, and, uh, but this is, um, uh, we actually do use a form of meditation. Uh, but it's a form of meditation that I realized uh, might have some healthy things meditation-wise when I was actually in medical school a number of years ago. Um, one of my rotations I actually did as an elective up in Michigan when I was in medical school. And uh, I had a biofeedback monitor implanted on me. Uh, it could be there day and night. It was actually a um, device that went into my ear measured my galvanized skin pressure, and when I was under stress, the pitch would go up, and when I was not under stress, the pitch would go down. And uh, I was surprised at things that I didn't think were stressful for me, but I would hear the pitch go up. You know, when I walked into a room as a medical student to do a history and physical, I didn't think I was nervous at all. But all of a sudden, the pitch went up right before I went into that room. And when it was rounds with the attending, when he was gathering the students and the residents around him, um, and he was starting to ask questions, the pitch would start to go up in my ear. And I thought, I don't think this is really bothering me. But in reality, uh, you know, it is. And so then I would try to actually get it down low, as low as I possibly could. And I would do things and imagine certain things and try to get the pitch down low. But it wasn't until that evening when I was, the first day that I had placed it, when I was in active prayer to God, 
that in the middle of that prayer, I thought, I don't hear this. And then I could realize, yes, I do. I've never heard it that low. And uh, that's when I realized that um, instead of Eastern meditation, which are using uh, mindfulness or mindlessness techniques to produce a self-hypnotic trance, that a uh, prayer which utilizes the frontal lobe of the brain can have some very beneficial characteristics to it. Now, uh, in uh, speaking about prayer, which is something that we actually utilize uh, in our program, uh, what is the definition of prayer? Let's see, I think we... I missed this side of things too. I'll just uh, I take it off of the presentation if we do ever get our slides working today. But uh, prayer is attempting to communicate with the divine. And uh, the book Education, which was actually written by one of the founders of Loma Linda University, in fact, the Secretary of Education in California said a few years ago that that book is far ahead of its time in regards to educational techniques. And uh, uh, many of you are probably not aware that Loma Linda would not exist um, without this individual. The, um, the church fathers were not for the building of Loma Linda University. And it was under a tremendous um, persistence uh, on uh, one of the uh, founders of the church um, that we uh, uh, actually have Loma Linda today. But in the book Education, she talks about this as uh, something that has to do with education. She says, prayer and faith are closely allied and they need to be studied together. Then she adds, in the prayer of faith, there is a divine science. So in the prayer of faith, there's actually science there. It is a science that everyone who would make his life work a success must understand. Do you want to have your life work to be a success? I know I do, and I would think that many of you do. And so this is something that you need to understand is the science of prayer and how this can actually help us. Now, there are five components of emotional intelligence. Knowing our emotions is one of them. Sometimes we call that self-awareness. Uh, and that means to be able to identify precisely what we're feeling, but not only what we're feeling, but why we're feeling that way. And if why we're feeling that way just has to do with the outside world or what someone did to us or said to us, we're not knowing our emotions because it turns out our emotions actually stem from our thoughts. Yes, it does have something to do with what happened to us, but it's our thoughts about what happened to us that actually bring about our emotions, and then those emotions can then result in behavioral consequences. So that's a big aspect of uh, improving your emotional intelligence is be able to know your emotions and to be able to be uh, completely aware of why you're feeling and what you're feeling. Number two, managing our emotions. People with low emotional intelligence are simply managed by their emotions, day by day, moment by moment. 
people with high emotional intelligence still have powerful emotions, but they're managing those emotions distinctly different. Recognizing emotions in others is part of emotional intelligence. And this is why empathy has a role to play. When we recognize emotions in others and we are emotionally intelligent, we will actually exhibit empathy, which is one of the uh, characteristics that can also help in our relationships. Managing relationships with others is the fourth aspect of things. Sometimes uh, this falls into the category called social intelligence, which is very intricately related to emotional intelligence. And then the fifth aspect of emotional intelligence has to do with the word that's in emotion. And that's the word motion. If our emotions are based on what's true and accurate, it will powerfully motivate us to achieve our goals. And also powerfully motivate us to achieve um, and to carry out a sense of purpose um, as well. And so uh, this is also why some people um, with high MCAT scores actually don't do well in medical school. Uh, it, they have the IQ to do well, but they didn't have the motivational aspect of things. And, uh, and so um, uh, this is why it's more than just IQ, it's EQ as well that's intricately related to being successful even in a student environment. Now studies have shown improving EQ can effectively prevent or treat depression, anxieties, phobias, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, eating disorders, and even addictions such as alcoholism, uh, pornography, uh, but it also helps normal people think clearer, communicate more effectively, it fosters unity in group settings, reduces polarizing statements, promotes a happier life, and all of this is accomplished without compromise or sacrificing the truth. Well, what are the influences on emotional intelligence? Our genetic makeup has a role to play. Our childhood experiences have a role to play. Our current level of emotional support has a role to play. Um, and then there are physical conditions. If you're lacking in sleep for 48 hours, what do you think happens to your emotional intelligence? Does it go up or go down? It's going to go down. Uh, nutrition has a vital role to play. In fact, when I was speaking in in Portland, Oregon, it was actually a nutrition conference, and they were wanting to know the role of nutrition and emotional intelligence. Uh, and uh, so we, um, uh, of course, spoke about that, but I couldn't just speak about that uh, because there is more than just nutrition alone as far as factors that affect emotional intelligence. Uh, but what the most major influence on EQ is, our emotions are largely controlled by our beliefs, our evaluation of events, the way we think about problems, and our silent self-talk. Those are the moment-by-moment -moment messages we're giving ourselves. Your feelings do result from the messages you give yourself. Your thoughts have much more to do with how you feel than what is actually happening in your life. This is why Paul and Silas, who were taken against their will and beaten with rods, uh, and even though they had done nothing wrong, they're put on an irregular dirt floor, um, their feet are put up in stocks, and there they are crying uncontrollably in prison and saying, why us, Lord? Is that what they're doing? They have happy looks on their faces and they're singing praises to God. Why is that the case? Because their thoughts had much more to do with how they were feeling than what was actually happening in their life. And if that can happen, 
in regards to that type of adverse situation, think what can happen to you if you are actually thinking true and accurate thoughts. Now, I'm going to go into a, a case report today uh, from uh, someone who was asked to be the leader of a great nation. And I should hope that many of you are actually destined for leadership because of your abilities and what is going to happen post-graduate uh, uh, in you. And so many of you are going to be called to be leaders, at least in some settings. Um, I should say pretty much all of you are going to be called to be leaders, at least in some settings. But this uh, man uh, actually would not have volunteered for the leadership position. Uh, in fact, had there been a, a race um, to run for this, um, he would have never um, actually volunteered for it. Um, he did have some leadership characteristics, at least that the world views as leadership characteristics. He was tall, he was good looking, he um, had resources, um, uh, came and was brought up in an in a, um, environment where hard work and persistence and uh, that type of work ethic was a part of it. Uh, he also had some leadership characteristics in that he was humble. And he was well-liked by common people as well as the well-educated people. In fact, uh, the Bible says uh, one of the greatest individuals um, in his time, which was the prophet Samuel, when he met him, he, the, Samuel loved him like his own son. He was anointed by God to become king. And some people think that God was kind of, um, you know, getting back at the people. Uh, for wanting a king to begin with, so they chose a bad king. But in reality, he chose the best man for the job. This man had all the characteristics to be a great king. And even after he was anointed to become king, he actually became more humble. And the Bible says that he ran across um, some people from the school of the prophets, and he began to prophesy and pray. He recognized his dependence upon God to be a successful leader. And when he started out in his leadership, he started out doing some great things. Very courageous, very hardworking, and very forgiving towards those who had done him wrong, even in the process of becoming king. Um, his advisors told uh, him to go after those people, and he would not go after those people. But within a period of time, he began to suffer from emotional problems. And there is a saying that you might have heard of, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts how? It corrupts absolutely. There is a human natural tendency for this to occur, and we can follow this tendency many times in leaders. And even though he was a great leader to start out with, he began to suffer from some significant emotional problems that adversely affected his ability to lead. Research has documented that negative thoughts which cause emotional turmoil nearly always contain gross distortions. The thoughts on the surface appear valid, but you will learn that they are irrational or just plain wrong and that twisted thinking is a major cause of suffering. What's a major cause of suffering? Twisted thinking. So let's take a look at King Saul's emotional issues. We know when people have emotional issues that are significant, it virtually always involves distorted thinking. 
And so this is something that's very important for us to learn, the, the different ways of distorted thinking. And one that Saul got into, there are 10 different categories of distorted thoughts, but the one that he started to get into the most is called magnification or minimization. This is when we major in minors and we minor in majors. And there was a tremendous victory that occurred in Israel as a result of his leadership. And the prophet Samuel comes to him afterwards and he thought it was gonna be a great time of celebration and Samuel says, what is this that I see? What is this that I hear? You haven't followed all of the counsel. And Saul minimizes his mistakes. And he begins to ju justify himself. And Confucius says, a man that has made a mistake and doesn't correct it is committing another mistake. And that another mistake is actually worse than the first because that means you're doomed to repeat it. You're not actually learning. And so he minimized it, said it's no big deal. It wasn't only until he began to suffer the consequences of that that he tried to own up to it just to avoid the consequences. But David Schwartz says, we can turn setbacks into victories, find the lesson applied and move on, then look back on defeat and smile. The writer of education says, if you have made mistakes, you certainly gain a victory if you see these mistakes and regard them as beacons of warning. Thus, you turn defeat into victory. So we can actually, all of us, are, of course, have imperfections. And all of us are going to make mistakes. But when we make mistakes, let's be responsible. Let's own up to our portion of the mistake and not point fingers in other areas or try to minimize it. And we can have that opportunity of growing and actually becoming better people. Another area in that he's minimized his own issues, his own mistakes, but then he began to magnify particularly himself. And again, this is a natural tendency when you're a leader. When people continue to come to you for advice in order to make decisions, over time you can actually think that you are a very important person. And you start to think that the world, at least your world around you, can't operate well without you and that you are an absolute necessity. And he began to develop this high sense of pride and it's very clear that he had developed that because after another victory, when the people, the men were all marching in and the women were there to celebrate the victory from, uh, for them and they had heard of what happened in the battle and so they all get together and sing this tremendous song in perfect harmony. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul wasn't sure he heard it the first time. And I should admit that if I were Saul's physician and the choir director that day, I would have advised the women to change the lyrics. <laughs> but remember, they knew this man as a humble man. They were not doing this to try to denigrate Saul at all. They were just trying to honor the all-star of the battle. And what they thought would happen is that he would put his arm around David and say, yes, I put him in the position to succeed. Aren't we glad? that we have David and how the Lord is working through David now. But instead, his pride was wounded 
and he began to suffer significant emotional issues of both depression and anxiety. Now, uh, William Backus, uh, someone who understands these 10 different ways of distorted thinking, um, has written a book. It's actually a good book if you want to improve your emotional intelligence. It's called What Your Counselor Never Told You, The Seven Sins That Lead to Mental Illness. And the first sin that he mentions is the sin of pride. And by the way, it's not unique to Saul. There are others with emotional issues that had this problem. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar said, is not this great Babylon that I have built? Who was he magnifying? Magnifying himself, arrogance, pride. And did he have emotional issues? Severe emotional issues, rage, loss of temper. Uh, in fact, he would want to commit genocide on groups of people. Uh, and his problems were so severe, it took more than a 10-day program to get over them. It took even more than an eight-week program to get over them. How long was Nebuchadnezzar's program? It was a seven-year program. What did the Lord utilize? The first thing he did was put him on a plant-based vegetarian diet. <laughs> that is a diet that actually helps. I mean, University of Phoenix, others have shown the depression and anxiety scores will, will go to less than half of what they were starting about two weeks after you're on a plant-based diet. Now his diet, I mean, his um, issues were so severe, it couldn't just be any plant-based diet, it had to be just the raw greens uh, in particular. Uh, in addition, he had to um, uh, exercise. In fact, if he didn't exercise, he wasn't going to be able to eat. Um, circadian rhythms were put in balance. Hydrotherapy was part of the equation as well. But what really helped him in the end was getting rid of his cognitive distortions of magnification of self. Did the program work? It did work. It worked so much that people don't realize Nebuchadnezzar is actually a writer of the Bible. He wrote an entire chapter, Daniel chapter 4 of the Bible. And you can see how his whole demeanor changed. Instead of coercion and force and those type of things, he just used this simple appeal and reason in order to try to get people to not go in the condition that he did and also to um, uh, take advantage of improving their emotional intelligence. Well, uh, if we um, had a screen for you to look at, I would go through the symptoms of pride, but I'll just mention them. This is from William Backus's book to see whether you might have it. Trying to be noticed, craving attention, itching for compliments, needing to be important, detesting the idea of being submissive, loathing the idea of admitting to wrongdoing, strongly opinionated, being argumentative, demanding your way, wanting control over others, flaunting your individual rights, refusing advice, being critical yet resenting criticism, being oversensitive, and thinking you have excellences you don't have. William Backus says, watch out, you don't have to have all of those, just one or particularly more than one Pride is there, and what's going to follow is wounded pride. And wounded pride sets yourself up for a lot of emotional issues. In contrast, we have Christ 
who one of the best biographies about him stated this, Christ was never elated by applause. Never elated by applause. Why is that? Out of all people, he probably should have been the one that could have developed a sense of self. After all, he created the world. But he was never elated by applause because he never allowed himself to develop that sense of arrogancy or self-importance. Never elated by applause, and then the author goes on, nor dejected by censure or disappointment. Those two are connected. If you're never elated by applause, you're not going to be dejected by censure or disappointment. And then she goes on to say, amid the greatest opposition and the most cruel treatment, as much opposition as you've had and as much cruelty has been manifested your way, you're still not up there with Christ because he had the greatest opposition, the most cruel treatment. He was still of good courage. Still of good courage. And the secret was his humility. That's why he could say not only in words but also in action, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The founder of the Democratic Party in America understood some aspects of this. He said, nothing gives one person so much advantage over another as to remain cool and unruffled under all circumstances. Cool and unruffled under all circumstances. And the only way you can do this is to not magnify things out of proportion. One of the great magnifications that many people have is this idea that they can't stand something. We call it, I can't stand it-itis. And, you know, there's only one thing a human being cannot stand. That's death. Everything else they actually can stand, but when they tell themselves they can't stand it, that's when emotions get out of control, and that's when we start actually looking very foolish uh, in many um, ways. In fact, this is so important that we actually teach our participants a song when they come to us the first night. I don't like it, I don't like it, it's okay, it's okay, I can stand it anyway, I can stand it anyway, I'm all right, I'm all right. And that little simple song teaches you just because you don't like something doesn't mean that you can't stand it. Well, when Saul underwent the recommended therapy for depression, he would feel better again. What was his recommended therapy? For Saul, it was music therapy. What type of music? It was actually harp music. Harp has some wonderful characteristics. We utilize this in our program. One of the characteristics is you can't play it too loud. Uh, it's the more softer tones, the melodious, harmonious tones that can help balance the brain. And it would balance his brain. He would actually feel better again. And he would actually correct some of those distorted thoughts. There were times when David came to him as not only the music therapist, but uh, when he got so severe, he couldn't be his music therapist anymore because it was dangerous. Um, he, um, he did become his CBT counselor, though, by going a mountain away from him and giving him some counsel and advice. And uh, uh, Saul, after listening to that advice, said, David, you're right. Go home. It's going to be safe. I was wrong. I'm thinking of bad. I'm thinking distorted. But he didn't practice correcting his distorted thoughts for more than two weeks. And this is one of the things that individuals have to do. They not only need to correct their thoughts, but they need to practice practice, practice. Well, finally, 
Saul got into significant anxiety as a result of not only his thoughts, but what was happening to the nation. The greatest threat ever was coming to the nation. And the Bible says, Saul saw the host of the Philistines. He was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. And Saul inquired of the Lord. So Saul now goes to prayer. We talked about how prayer is a good thing. But the Bible says the Lord didn't answer him the way Saul thought he should. Saul wanted him to answer. Saul gave him three options on how to answer him. By the way, beware of demanding that the Lord answer the prayer the way you state he should. But the other thing that you need to be aware of is if he doesn't answer you, it's probably because he's already answered you and you haven't been following his counsel. This is why David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Iniquity, the root word, is bent or crooked thoughts. So if we're thinking bent or crooked thoughts and we're going to be persistent in that, the Lord's not going to be able to influence us because he's all about truth. Both the Old and New Testament say he cannot lie. I suppose he could if he wanted to, but he puts truth above himself. Truth is actually above himself, and he's not going to be where lies are at. So we have to be willing to straighten out our own thoughts in order to be adequately influenced by him. The purpose of prayer is not to get what we want. Did you hear that? If the purpose of prayer was to get what we want, wanted, the most selfish people in the world should be praying the most. The purpose of prayer is not to get what we want. It's not to change the heart and mind of God. It is to have God change our heart and mind in accordance with his will. And how can we accomplish this purpose? You know, the disciples were envious of Christ in some ways where it's good to be envious of. They recognized that he had a very fulfilling prayer life to the point where they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he taught them some things. He said, first, go into your closet. In other words, have this be private time where you can actually talk out loud to God. That's how he knew, they knew he had a great prayer life because they were hearing him talk out loud. He thought he was alone sometimes and then they would come up on him. And, uh, but he was talking out loud. When you do that, you can actually concentrate more. It actually is something where your mind doesn't get distracted. And so he told us to take time alone. Go into your closet and pray out loud. Confess specific sins, specific distorted thoughts that might lead us into it. By the way, before there's a sinful act, there's always a sinful thought. And those sinful thoughts are always based on one of those ten distorted ways of thinking. Read the word. When you see a promise, claim it in prayer. So read the word out loud when you're in prayer time. And when you see a command, ask the Lord if you're in compliance with that command. As you communicate with God in his word, this will be far more powerful than any meditation technique that could be described where it's a self-hypnotic way of just trying to get you to feel better. This is something that can actually be a rudimentary way of changing your thoughts into what is true and accurately, and true and accurate, and actually uh, powerfully put us in a position to more habitually think true and accurate thoughts that will bring about 
and emotional stability that can't be obtained in other ways. That's why the psalmist said, search me thoroughly, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my what? Thoughts. In other words, he said, I don't see any distorted ways. And most of us don't. You know, others can see our distorted ways of thinking a lot easier than we can often. And you can find someone else's. But the toughest thing is to recognize your own distorted ways. And that's why David said, try me, know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked or distorted way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Any questions or comments about what I've presented here today? Does it make sense? Let's utilize the true form of meditation in actually enhancing our emotional intelligence. The name of the author is William Backus, B-A-C-K-U-S. And the name of the book is What Your Counselor Never Told You, The Seven Sins That Lead to Mental Illness. Shall we close with prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you that you are interested in our health of body, mind, and soul. And we thank you that you've given us the ability to communicate with you. We understand perhaps more fully that, the, that faith and prayer are closely aligned. And we pray that each one of us more, might more fully understand the science of prayer experientially in our life so that we might experience not only the psychological good life, but to have a fulfilling and truly successful life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.